My name is Jake McLean, and you're listening to the Life, Leadership, and Laughs podcast. Hey there, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Uh, this week on the podcast, uh, I have, I've got Phil the Duke. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Phil, why don't you get started by uh, just uh, telling me and the listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a safety consultant. I was dragged kicking and screaming into safety uh, about 10 years ago. I had previously been head of organizational development for a tier one supplier to the auto industry, a job I really enjoyed. And a friend said, we need you on this project. It's a large automobile manufacturer and they want to change their safety culture, which has become a buzzword. And I said, no, thank you, because I'm in the business of change and safety people tend to be in the business of keeping things the same. The risk averse. When you introduce variation into a process, you introduce risk. So after repeated phone calls, I eventually took advice that I've always lived by, which is never turn down a job that you haven't been offered. And I went, listened to them, and what they wanted to do is they said, we want to apply the rules of lean manufacturing, world-class manufacturing, but instead of safety, I mean, instead of quality, let's do it for safety. And I asked, well, what do you mean? He said, well, if a process fails, either you screw up your part, your machinery, or your people. And that made sense to me. And so I went, joined uh, the company. We took the, the company in question from being one of the worst uh, manufacturers in safety to one of the best. And uh, very happy with that. The company then branched out to other companies. We did wonderful things until the Great Recession. And that hit. I um, started my own company with a high school friend of mine who had retired at age 44 and was just kind of kicking things around and saying, you know, I'm bored. So after a couple of years, he said, look, I do environmental, you do safety, let's start a company. So after getting laid off the Great Recession, we started the company. And like a lot of people starting out, I decided I needed to get a day job. So I worked in healthcare for two years until ERM, which is a global consultancy in the, and the leading sustainability consultancy in the world, uh, came and said, why don't you give up both these gigs and come work for us. And so I've been doing that for the last seven years, doing everything from high-end safety. I wouldn't call it consulting as much as reconfiguring their structure um, in mines, in oil and gas, in manufacturing. It's taken me all over the world. It's um, it's just been a fantastic experience. and. Yeah diversity of the projects I get to work on. But also I wrote over, now it's up over 400 
articles that are cited, um, excuse me, are eligible for citation, not just on safety, but on organizational development and management and all the things that I've experienced through my many years of working in these diverse industries. Right. And I've written two books. One is, uh, I know my shoes are untied, mind your own business. And it is a iconoclast view of worker safety. I've, I'll tell you a brief story about the background of the title. I used to work as a consultant at a plant. The safety guy would always say to me, hey, your shoes are untied. Next time I see you with your shoes are untied, you're out of the plant. You're not coming back. So I went out and I got loafers. Just easier. What he didn't tell me is every day I walk by an induction hardener. Now, for those who aren't highly technical, what that does is it hardens metal by passing it through a ring of extreme, highly um, electric field. And this, it's, I was told, I don't know the accuracy, but about twice the strength of a bolt of lightning. Oh, my gosh. So it's very dangerous if you have any metal on you at all. Yet this guy was worried about me wearing uh, my shoes being untied. Never once told me not to wear a watch, not to tell me, never once told me the, not to wear a belt because the buckle could do this. And about six months after I started, the guy who ran that machine who refused to take his wedding ring off was killed when electricity arced from the machine onto his wedding ring and oh fried. Oh, my gosh. So I'm thinking, you know. I, I named that for, for that reason. It's like, you're worried about my shoes being untied. You're worried about me hanging onto the handrail, but you're missing the big picture. Right. Then I started my second book and, and I'd been blogging for 10 years. So I had a lot of material and magazines and things like that. But, uh, the first book, I took a bunch of existing material, but also wrote new material. Cause I figured why would anybody buy a book when they can get everything on the internet for free? And I was continuing along those lines with my second book when my publisher, Mariah Publishing, uh, called me and said, what do you know about workplace single shooter events? And I said, well, it's been a while since I perpetrated one and just joking. No, seriously, you know, what do you know? I said, oh, quite a lot, actually. When I was in charge of this uh, organization development for this supplier, we had two workplace shootings within a month Mm. one of them someone made the mistake of telling our ceo that neither one of them counted because they had actually happened after the people left our premises and our ceo was a very very good and decent man and he said everyone counts here and so he called me into his office and he said i want you to become expert in what we have to do, what we have to know to make sure this never happens again. So I did. And then I just kind of left it alone. Um, We did extensive training and we never had another incident. So I was happy. So she asked me to do this. I went and grabbed all the stuff that I had learned and rewrote and updated and, and looked at it. And it 
became a, a very dark subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people don't like to hear that one workplace violence is the number one cause of workplace death for women. And two, 3% of the women killed in the workplace by violence are killed by a family member, typically a husband or a strange husband or a significant other domestic partner. Mm. So what you have is a situation. And, and by the way, contrast that to men who only 2% of them are killed by a domestic partner or family member. It's pretty shocking stuff. Also, 77% of non-lethal violence in the workplace is directed at women. And I think they've lowered the National Safety Council, spotted that number. Now I think they've just reduced it to closer to 70. I'm not going to quibble over seven points of uh, percentage points. Um, But it's pretty um, outrageous. Yeah. And when I would talk to men, they would say, oh, those figures can't be right. And I talk to women, they just kind of sadly shake their head and say, yeah, nobody cares if you kill a woman. Mm. And I've never considered myself a feminist. Um, Frankly, I've been mistrustful of male feminists. It's like, what's your agenda? Well, I'll be right up front with you. My agenda is this. I have a wife. I have three daughters. I have four sisters. I have aunts. I have cousins. I have friends that are women, and I don't want them killed in the workplace. I don't want anybody killed in the workplace. But this is predictable and preventable. Mm -hmm. And it's not mass shootings. People keep giving workplace um, HR leaders COOs, they keep giving them advice that's appropriate for a mass shooter, not for a workplace shooting. Mm. Between that and the very colorful career introduction, Phil, uh, I have so many questions. (laughs) Um, So um, I want to take it back just a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, transitions between your roles that led up to now the firm that you've been been working with for the last seven years. Well, the first biggest transition was when the owner of the company uh, at which I was head of organizational development committed suicide. Um, it hit me like a lightning bolt. I was just crushed. Here's a man who had 6,000 employees in something like 17 locations around the world and knew everybody's first name and some fact about him. Mm. And he made you feel that you were personally responsible for making him a billionaire. Came to this country, Horatio Alger style, came to study at uh, California Tech and... He had $330 in his pocket, cut the holes in the roofs of people cars and put sunroofs in it, which was unheard of in this country. He went to a Lincoln dealership in Southern California, and the guy looked at him and he was crazy and said, why would anybody cut a hole in the roof? And 
he said, give me 10. And if they don't sell, I'll do them all for free. Well, the first 10 sold in something like three hours. Jeez. Well, he quickly built this company up and I was brought in to transition it from an entrepreneurial ship to a professionally managed company. But he also suffered uh, deeply with depression and ultimately took his life. Well, it was clear that the company was for sale. And I, like I said, at this point, I thought, well, I better listen to what uh, this company is saying when they're asking me to come in and, and do this, even though I was leery of making a change. Change happens when the pain of not changing exceeds the pain of change. And that's where I was at. I just, you know, it was too painful to stay, so I moved. Yeah. I've also been a lifelong learner. So that was kind of an impetus and a catalyst for me to move into an area that was new to me, but also an area that was uncomfortable to me. So that really helped me to develop, forcing myself out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we've talked, uh, you've talked a little bit about organizational development and change in uh, kind of a, a general sense. Where did that, uh, where did the passion, uh, where did your passion for, for change and organizational development kind of come from? It's interesting because I, my degree was in adult education and I loved instructional design. I had been at uh, a General Motors facility where I was laid off when General Motors laid off 60,000 workers and closed something like 15 plants. So I knew I was never going to get a job back there. Um, although, interestingly enough, they called me back to work after I took a buyout and I said, you know, I've gone back to school. I've got a career now. Thank you. No. And besides, I can't because I took a buyout and I signed an agreement saying I couldn't um, do this. And they said, well, we'll waive that. I said, well, thanks anyway. OK. And six months later, they called again and said, we need you to um, come in, report to work. I said, yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. But I'm no, I've moved on from that part of my life. And then six months after that, they sent me a telegram firing me. It's the only time I've ever been fired. Uh, they fired, sent me a telegram firing me for failure to report to work. So, what? So, oh, my goodness. So kind of the, the passion for, for that is uh, probably rooted my, um, in me being a habitual malcontent, but also – my passion for change probably has its roots working the assembly line. I worked next to a guy who had four master's degrees. He was a perpetual student and he was just finishing up his latest master's degree in geology. And I said, why do you continue to work this line? It just beats the life out of you, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually this just beats on you like an anvil and he said what and take a pay cut and i realized that people judge you by what you do for a living and how much you make 
doing it versus how much pleasure you derive from it. And I was active there in making suggestions or suggestion programs. Nothing ever came of it. But I went back after getting laid off. I wanted just to get a resume. I didn't need help finding a job. I'd always been good at interviews. But they said, no, we will give you, this was UAW General Motors, we will give you a a resume. We'll do it and we'll mail it out to as many people as you want, as long as it's a business and you can make as many phone calls, follow up. So I treated getting a job like any job. But before you could do that, you had to go through this stupid job seeking skills workshop. And I wasn't real happy about it. None of us were. So we're sitting there and the guy comes in and he says, okay, what do you guys want to do for a living? Not all of us. Oh, make money. We need to make money. We need to make this much money. We need to make the kind of money we were earning at the plants. And he said, don't mess with me because I've got a job right now that pays more than you were making now. But it's hauling toxic waste. It's dangerous. And a good share of you may, if you take the job, you could end up poisoned and even dead. And so one person raised his hand and I knew the guy wasn't the, the brightest bulb in the strand, but he, I knew him and I knew if, if you're going to set something up, he's not the guy that you want in on the setup. You know what I mean? Sure. And he said, I'll do it. I don't care. I'm not afraid of that. And he said, don't play with me. He said, I, I'm serious. I said, no, I'm serious too. So he Went in the back. He said, we'll take a five-minute break. Went in the back and uh, made a phone call. The guy comes in, beaming. He said, I got a job. And he left it. And the guy looked at us and he said, I want the rest of you to shut up about money. He said, I want you to write. There's a piece of paper in front of you and a pen. He said, I want you to write down two things. One is something you're good at. And the other is something that you enjoy doing. So I enjoyed drawing. And I'm good at public speaking. So I said, I'm, I'm like, to, you know, I'm good at public speaking and I enjoy artistic endeavors. What, you know, so um, he's talked to me and he said, well, what kinds of jobs have this kind of kind of thing. So I said, well, I thought maybe a communication degree. So I called the University of Michigan Dearborn and they at that time didn't offer a communications degree. Hmm. But they said to me, you might be right for our training development and design program. And I, uh, I said, well, what is it? And they said, well, it's, you know, it's adult education. So, you know, you would, it it's public speaking, it's doing layouts of materials, it's really a strategic way of doing this. And so I enrolled in the course and, and very quickly um, got a job that I was completely unqualified for um, because I'd enrolled in school. The General Motors UAW would pay 
six half of six months of my wages in um on the job for on the job training well that didn't really work out very well and then my uh the head of my program at university of michigan called me up and he said we need you got a job for you and i said i don't know i'm i'm not good at the stuff i'm doing now i don't enjoy not good at it so forget all that this job all you need to do is be able to talk to union guys and since you you yourself are uaw and this is the uaw plant he said they're getting tired of snot-nosed kids straight out of college that don't have never worked a day in their life telling them how to do work differently and so i was intrigued and i went and became a consultant worked for myself but i worked with some of the best minds in organizational development and they were fascinating to me one of the, just one of the many gems that they said to me is there's a law of thermodynamics that power is neither created nor destroyed it merely changes form hmm. and the same thing is true in organizations yeah people who currently have power are going to fight like badgers to ke- to keep it and to really change you have to take the power away from the people who currently have it and give it to the people who need it and that really intrigued me yeah. and the whole there's there's i mean i was working with household names in organizational development they weren't at the time but they've become that and it was just fascinating to me that the nature of change and i had worked um for um when i was head of organizational development later um i was even more fascinated by the fact that uh well i was in, i was charged with transitioning them to a continuous improvement model so in other words i was in charge of the continuous improvement team which meant that we had to implement lean manufacturing i was actually the, in charge of it my boss was was the uh in charge of it but i was the top operationals uh operational guy and for me what's really rewarding is when you have somebody who's living in misery but they're going to continue living in misery because change is so incredibly scary mhm and they will absolutely be miserable but they won't do anything about it and what i do is i help them through the emotional side of change how to and when they start to see that their life is getting better because of the changes it's i call it i i say it's like uh shooting a rubber band you pull the rubber band and as you pull it back it gets harder and harder and harder and then when you let it go it zips forward yeah and what resistance to change is like mm-hmm. people resist 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 until it's just unbearable to them they can't stand the pressure of resisting and then it tends to spring forward and so i enter organizations 
uh, whether it be safety, whether it be quality, whether it just be financials. Um, I work with turnarounds. And so I work with people who, when they first come in, the first phase is we don't need any help. We're doing just fine. It's like, no, you're not. If you're doing just fine, your boss, the exec team wouldn't have called me in. So let's put that aside for now. And if you are doing just fine, you're doing a poor job of communicating that you're doing just fine to the people who are making financial decisions about your future. So let me help you at least communicate the good things you're doing. Then the second phase is they feel like the change is too big. The job is just too much. There's too many things that have to be done, too many things that, that are going wrong, and you just can't, they just can't tolerate it. Sure. And I have to, so first I have to convince them that they've got problems. Then I have to convince them that we can solve those problems together. And then they say, you know, what's taking so long? Why aren't we getting things moving? We need to get moving. We get, we're moving too slowly. Mm. Then we pull the trigger and it's like shooting that rubber band. Then they're like, whoa, 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 we're, we're, we're moving way too fast here. Right. Slow things down, roll things back and, and just put the brakes. I said, nope, we're going we're gonna to continue. And then eventually there's this moment of chaos. And I don't know how, I don't understand why, but it's like flicking a light switch. You go from chaos to things working in an orderly fashion. And then the same people who did not want me coming into their organization don't want me to leave. And that feels really good. Yeah, in fact, when I joined my current company, ERM, I used several people who were ex-clients who I had helped turn their company around years before. And I thought, my, my boss who hired me said, that takes a lot of guts to have ex-customers do that. Most people will have their brother-in-law or, or someone that they know and they can be positive of what they're going to say. And I said, I never doubted for a second what they were going to say. I still get, I'm in touch with almost every ex-customer I've ever had. It's a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah, and that transformation can be very, very powerful. So uh, as you um, as you were describing kind of your approach and the different things that you're doing, um, what, ad, uh, what advice would you give to uh, people who are looking either to get into this kind of work, uh, doing consulting and uh, org development kind of things, and the second part of that, the other part of that is what advice would you give to the the leaders in these uh, companies, whether they're the managers or uh, people that might not have any authority or any power? What advice would you give to them in navigating some of the some of the people who might be resistant to change? Sure. So starting with the first part of that, the advice I'd give to somebody who wants to get into this business is a good consultant isn't a cop. They're not about rules and enforcement. 
they're about persuasion. You have to be able to persuade someone who does not want to do something that it's in their best interest to, to do it. You have to be able to win people over so they'll listen to you and trust you, even though you've just met them and they have no reason on earth to trust you. But I would also say, just do it. Apply to consulting firms. Most of them will teach you what you need to do. But if you don't have the personality, um, people will can people people when you come into the process can be pretty horrible to you. They'll sure. You everything a child of God, but you got to just have that resiliency to be able to bounce back and and do that. But as far as how to get into it, um, now there's many programs, but you don't really need extensive education to get into the to the field. Now, as for the second part of that, what advice would I give to managers who are struggling with people who um, are resistant to change is get help. Now, that's a very consultant, salesy thing to say. <laughs> but what I would suggest is this. I tell people, because somebody, you know, I'll lay out what needs to be done. They say, okay, thanks. What do we need you for? And I say, and I found this to be true. Because while people will eventually accept change, they'll never forgive the person who brought it. Hmm. So I can be the bad guy. And you'll take all the credit, all the praise. The execs will come to you and other companies will come to you and ask how you did it. Wouldn't you rather that than having a workplace who hates you? Everybody needs help from now or again. And your core job responsibilities aren't aligned with what I do for a living. You're not in the change business. I am. So let me help you to be a star. Or not me, but get somebody else then. Yeah. They won't be as good, of course, but, you know. <laughs> That's right. Not everybody wants to drive the best car. There's people out there that want to drive a Yugo. Yeah. And so... Um... Looking across the different experiences you've had in your career, Phil, uh, how would uh, so this is probably more of a values question. Uh, how do you think these different experiences uh, and what you've experienced in them? How do you think that's shaped? You know how uh, how you live your life. How you might um, you know maybe it's a shift in a leadership philosophy. Maybe it's a a shift in just how you think about the world. Um, you know. Describe that for me. That rustling you just heard was me picking up a bookmark from, remember I said I got a day job when I started my company. Well, it was with a faith-based um, hospital system where two convents, which had been around for over 500 years, realized that between the two of them, their youngest member was 78. They were risking cultural extinction. 
So they got together and they formed Trinity Health. And they had core values. Everybody's got core values, right? Right. You walk in, you see them on the on the wall. And I wrote an article called uh, Values Are Made in the Halls, Not on the Walls. But they had guiding behaviors that they really enforce. And I'd like to read a couple of them to you. We see we support each other in serving our patients in our communities. So that was abbreviated to we support ourselves in service. Can remember I was stuffing manuals for a training course, and we had probably 30 people in our department. And one by one at a time, they stopped doing what they were doing because they could see I needed help. And all of a sudden, it was done because everyone pitched in. That's just what we did. We communicate openly, honestly, respectfully, and directly. If I would go to my boss and say, well, Shirley has been doing blah, 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 she would look at me and say, what did Shirley say when you addressed it with her? Mm. And if I said, well, I hadn't, I can't talk to her, so, well, you're going to have to talk to her first and try to work this out. And if you can't, then you, me, and Shirley and her boss will get together and we will talk it out as a, as a quad. We are fully present. This one I struggle with. You go into meetings and people, I have their nose in their phone. They're, they're um, checking their email. They're you know, doing a dozen different things. But being fully present means is that when I'm talking to you, like we're talking now, this is the most important thing in my life. This is the most important activity. Listening to you, talking to you, and communicating with you openly and honestly, respectfully and directly. Yeah. Now, I struggled with that at first, but then I stopped. I just stopped bringing my phone with me to meetings. If it's important, they'll call back. Uh, and finally, um, well, there's uh, uh, three more. We are all accountable, so there's no blaming. We were. We are all answerable for our actions. The other one I struggled with too. We trust and assume goodness and intentions. Hmm. So if somebody did something that crossed the line, like we always do, we, you have these inner Nicene wars within companies where this person did that and they don't have a right to say this. You didn't have that. I would walk up to somebody and say, you know, you probably didn't realize this, but when you did X, that created a problem for me over here. And here's why. What can we do together to make sure this doesn't happen going forward? And I'll tell you what. In all but the rarest cases, they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea you this would cause problems for you. I'm so sorry. Let, let me help you fix it. And we are all continuous learners. So we were expected as part of our job to continually question, learn, and really, and it fits so well with my passion for change. So how did this collectively change that? That's the code I live by. Yeah. Now. And it's, it's so stress relieving to, if somebody has done something that irritates you to think, well, they probably didn't know that they irritated me. And it's expanded from one company 
to many companies that have, that I've worked with to driving in traffic. If someone's, you know, right up on my, my uh, bumper and I, I move out of the way, I don't get mad. They'd be, might be rushing someone to the hospital or they might be rushing to, to uh, a hospital to see their dying mother. I don't know what's going on in their life. Right. It's not an act of aggression. I don't know them. It's not an act of aggression to me. You got to give that stuff up. And if you do, your life gets better. Forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. Yeah. And I, um, I think that everybody could learn uh, a thing or two from, from Trinity health and from that, those kind of core values um, particularly the mindfulness bit and being present. Um, I think uh, I definitely struggle with that myself sometimes. And so uh, it's just those, and it's, uh, you know, it's not so simple, uh, but it's simple enough that, you know, I think people just kind of take that kind of thing for granted. They do take it for granted. And, and I can't emphasize enough. We live this. When you're in a culture when you have values, these are the unbreakable things. They're not priorities. These are the lines that you won't cross. And you need to really live according to your values or you will not be happy in no matter what you're doing. In your personal life, your relationships, everything suffers when you move outside your values. Now, we were fully aware that these were what they called aspirational goals that we knew we were imperfect and there would be times when we wouldn't do this but we would always enforce gently like if i would say i would be frustrated and, and saying well this person's just a jerk they, someone would gently remind me sometimes you know comically say assume goodness of intentions right and what was funny is it had a very high turnover rate the first year there's a lot of people who cannot deal with that level of honesty with themselves or with others. Yeah. So there were a lot of people who just couldn't take the pressure to be genuine and mindful all the time. Man. That's, uh, I think that, uh, I'm I'm visualizing the reason I pause so long is I can visualize people that you know I come into contact with pretty regularly who kind of face those same struggles uh and might not be able to take that same pressure. But um I I I found myself the first couple of months trying to decide are these people for real <laughs> or is it something that I'm going to find out one day it's all been a masquerade. Right. Then you, when you hit that tipping point, you think, wow, this is, I mean, and don't get me wrong. It had the job had its frustrations and I had arguably the worst job there, which was to be the liaison between the talent development group, the people who, who shaped the organization and the learning of the organization and the unified revenue organization. Because when you run hospitals as a system, you don't need 150 different accounting systems. Right. So that's where I was literally, again, in the business of change and dealing with that, that pressure that people are under 
when they're in the business of change. I thrived in that, but some people don't. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, Phil, so I want to uh, open this up in case there's anything else that uh, you feel you haven't uh, spoken to that you wanted to, because uh, we've mentioned the books, uh, some of your uh, the things you've done over the span of your career. Um, but I'll leave the I'll leave the floor open for you if there's anything else that you have to get out there. I, I would think I would just say what a lot of people are saying lately, and that is be kind to one another. It costs so little and it's so rewarding. So be nice. Whether or not you're happy or grumpy or depressed, I'm not talking clinically now, or or just a jerk, amounts to a decision. Mm-hmm. And Abraham Lincoln said, people are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. Now, I've seen people dispute that, that he said that or not, but I'm going to attribute it to him. If you find me wrong, I'm imperfect. But <laughs> keep your mind to be happy. Yeah. There's how resilience is this big push in business now to make workers more resilient because when you're under stress, it diminishes your immune system. You're, you get sick. You feel worse. You're unable or less able to fight infections, disease, etc. But there's a simple thing you can do, and that's be optimistic. I am by nature, or was, pessimistic. Because if you're pessimist, if the bad thing happens, you kind of already were expecting it. But if you're an optimist, it makes you vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. You get disappointed. But going through life thinking that things are going to be pleasant, that good things are going to come your way, you're just happier than if you walk through life thinking, woe is me, everything's going to fall apart, everything's going to be miserable. Now, that's not to say that I'm a Pollyanna and I'm walking around without a care in the world. I worry just like anyone else worries. But for the most part, I've decided I'm going to be happy. And part of that is living in the moment. Yeah. I'm not saying you know, spend every money on every, every cent you have and run up your credit card bills and, and, and not care about consequences. Right. But focus every once in a while. Take time of your day. And focus on all the good things that you have in your life. Because for most people, we don't ever really take an inventory of all the wonderful things that we have, that we've accomplished, the wonderful people who love us. That's where we need to focus. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Phil, I want to... Thank you for taking the time speaking with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, the pleasure was mine. Absolutely. Listeners, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Life, Leadership, and Last podcast. Remember that you can follow the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to subscribe to my speaking and coaching adventures by checking out the website at www.jakespeaks.org. You can also just follow me on social media, Twitter and Instagram at MC Leadership Guy. Until next time, take care.